You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. What is happening? It's on the You're listening to the AME Radio Show. everybody, welcome to the AME Radio Show, the show that is the voice of artists and entertainers everywhere. I'm your host, Jason Dowd. we got a special show for you guys today because we were only planning on doing one show this week. However, we got a great guest coming on. He's got a brand new movie hitting the theaters this weekend, and we want to be able to make sure you get out there and know about it, and we're excited to have him on. And then what we're also going to do is because, you know what, I'm just in a free-spirited type of mood, we're going to be playing some music. So i got a lot to cover in just a little bit of time. Let's get right down to it. Go check out our website, www.theamemagazine.com. While you're there, you'll be able to see everything that is the AME experience, our television, radio, and magazine platforms. You'll be able to go to the special links for our social media. We want you to follow us and like us there. You can download our apps for our Apple or Android platforms completely free, sign up for our newsletter, and so much more. So please go over there, be inspired, and follow your dreams. And if you don't, if you need somebody to help kickstart that, all of our guests are here to help you, and also show you what they have going on. So even if you just want to be inspired to go try something new or see something new, they got it for you. All right, guys. So our guest today, his name is Jeff Lipsky. He's a writer and director, and he has a brand new film coming out called The Last, which airs this Saturday um, and Friday in places all throughout California. Uh, we have, uh, looks like, uh, West L.A., Encino, and Irvine, Irvine, California. So we will have all of this. We're going to talk about this movie, how we got into directing, and so much more. He's a lot of fun. And then what we're going to do, when we come back from that interview, we're going to be going to the U.K. You know, the U.K. has a lot of amazing musicians that come out of there. In fact, it's made it really hard for me to even choose what songs I want to have on here because I'm trying to put a mixture of old and new. But some of these people you may not have even known came from the U.K. This is what I want to do, and I've been putting this off for a long time because I've just had so much to, to cover in just a little bit of time, but I have a little bit of time today. So we're going to have some fun by going to the U.K., listening some to some great artists out there, and realizing some of the different styles of music because I love I love Irish music, I love Scottish music and you know one of the things that you don't hear a lot about you don't see a lot of them out there. But I love their style cuz I like how they are able to um they have a, they have a dialect in their in their their wording and in their speech and I just love that. And sometimes when I when they incorporate the old Celtic chants and stuff like that, god I love it. So we will have a bunch of artists on. In fact, we are going to have the Cranberries, Donna Lewis, the Coors, Julie Fallis, who's actually from uh, Scotland. We have uh, Ellie Golding coming on. She is from the UK. Kathy Dennis, we also, and she's from the UK. We also have um, U2 and the Beatles. And some of the, these are some of my favorite songs from these individuals. So um, some of them have a very special meaning to me. And they bring me to a special time. And I hope that they'll do the same for you. Okay, so I'm going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we have our first, our only guest today, Jeff Lipsky, on the line. And I'm excited to talk to him. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this. 
Gladdy, the dachshund, the face of Gladdy's goodies. Are you worried about your pet's health? My parents were too, especially since I developed pancreatitis. They couldn't find any treats I could eat, so they made some. Our natural treats are healthy for all dogs, with and without health issues. We have lots of delicious flavors, like chicken, turkey, salmon, sweet potato, beef, and more. With our homemade treats, you won't worry about the contents because they have no chemicals, fillers, or bad ingredients. Go to gladdiesgoodies.com now to get your fur friend a bag and pick them up some swag while you're there. You'll be glad you did. Remember, we have the treats and swag to make their tails wag. Again, that's gladdiesgoodies.com. Again, that's gladdiesgoodies.com. Hi, I'm Serena Vincent, and you're listening to the A&E Radio Show. Sam Cooke singing on the radio You say that I'm the boy Who can make it all come true Well, I'm telling you that I don't know Welcome back, everybody. We have on line with us a special guest. His name is Jeff Lipsky. He is a writer and director, and he just came out with a brand new film called The Last. Uh, actually, I kind of read a little bit about this film before we uh, talked to him, and it sounds like a very fascinating film. And I think it's going to be something that you guys will love to see and and learn about as well because it, it's it, it's it's very historic in in some in some ways and it, it's keeping some of the history that we have around alive and I think that's important because we don't ever want to forget stuff. But I'm going to let him get into all those details here in a few minutes. But first, let me introduce to you to Jeff. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Well, thanks for coming on and talking about your movie here. Um, I kind of want to get a little bit about, to learn a little bit more about you before we get into this, because, you know, everybody's life is, is fascinating and how they how they come about things and how they how they manage to get to where they are today. And, you know, that's a, that's a story that we can all tell. And I'm hoping that your story will also inspire others to follow their dreams as well. So tell me a little bit about yourself. When did you decide you wanted to become a writer and a director? Well, I wanted to become a writer and director when I was 10 years old, and that's the truth. Um, I, I, I was immersed in movies like so many people from the earliest age I can remember. And when I was 10 years old, I actually applied for a job at my local movie theater as an usher, and they told me I was too young. So I wrote a letter to President Kennedy complaining, <laughs> and I got a letter back from the White House referring me to the New York State Department of Labor. So I kind of put it off for a few years. Uh, and I think that when we grow up, uh, and when we are just, when we find film is a transformative art form for us, uh, one can always point to a specific movie as start coming of age that changes the way you look at movies. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was when I saw at the age of 17, I believe it was, uh, John Cassavetti's film, Husband. And even though it was about three 40-year-old men who were dealing with mortality for the first time in their lives, suddenly I knew everybody in that movie, every fictional character resonated for me. I knew people in my lives like that and folks like this and, and who stays with these people for so long without moving on to something else. Only people that can write and direct a film about real life. And even at the age of 17, he became uh, my filmmaking idol. Uh, the next year, I was in college, and I got to meet him when his next film opened. Uh, I was a film critic for my college paper. I interviewed him. I was a horrible interviewer. <laughs> but um, 
he um, he had the patience of Job, and he uh, gave me his office address in California and said, let's stay in touch. And for 18 months, we were pen pals. I was 18, 19 years old, and I kind of let the the, 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 the communiques go I, I, because I was managing movie theaters at the time, and I loved it. I've loved everything I've ever done. I said, well, obviously, this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. And a year and a half after that, I read in Variety, a, a newspaper I'd been reading, by the way, since I was 10 years old. I read in Variety that uh, the New York Film Festival was going to world premiere in 1974, uh, John Cassavetes' new film, a woman under the influence. So I immediately uh, bought a ticket and uh, made it a point to find out where John would be staying in New York, which I did. And I called the hotel and he answered the phone the day before I saw the movie. And I said, I don't know if you remember me. It's Jeff Lipsky. He said, oh, Jeff Lipsky. Of course I remember you. What are you doing? And I said, I'm managing movies. And bells went off in his head because I didn't know that he didn't have this debt for his movie that he co-financed himself with his star, Peter Falk, I didn't know anything about this. But summoned me to his hotel, he said his sister just brought posters in, and I went up there, and I volunteered to hang posters at local colleges. The next day I saw the movie, I thought it was a masterpiece. He had arranged to open it on his own in New York and Los Angeles, just to get momentum going. In both cities, it broke the house record. And so there were about a half dozen acolytes, half a dozen morons like me, um, idolized John. And he said to all of us, after two or three weeks, he said, we're going to do this ourselves. We're going to distribute and market this film ourselves. How would you like to join the team? And that's how I got into distribution. I didn't know what this was. I thought by sidling alongside John day in, day out, it would accelerate the process by which I could make my own film. I didn't realize it was going to take another 20 years. But uh, it launched my career as a distributor, and I've been fortunate to have uh, represented and marketed and distributed some of the greatest films ever made. And it put me in direct contact with some of the greatest filmmakers ever made. And along with John, John who's, uh, for whom I, I released three movies, um, in, 1990, in 1988, uh, I forged a relationship with Mike Lee, the UK director, and his producer, his then-producer, Simon Channing Williams who is an unsung hero uh, of, of film. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and when I, I, I started a company called October Films in 1990, which is, to this day, one of the most successful independent uh, film distribution companies in history. It was ultimately sold to General Electric, which at the time was the biggest company in the world. Um, and after I left October, after four or five years, I had saved up enough money, I had written a script I loved, and I said, you know what? It, it, it's like John's film. It's uncompromising. It's about, it's a true film about who we all are, about human beings. And I'm not going to ask permission from anybody to make it. I have the money to make it, and I'm going to do it. And that's what, in 1995, launched my career. Uh, it was eight years before my second film called Flannel Pajamas with Justin Kirk and Julianne Nicholson. And that film was selected for competition at Sundance. So that's kind of where, you know, that brought me to where we are now. The last is my seventh movie. And that's a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> but still, that's a, it's a fascinating story. I love stories like that. Yeah, I mean, it just, it just shows you what a little bit of passion, a little bit of perseverance can do. And, you know, like you said, it, it took you 20 years before you made your movie, but you made it. You know, and I think that's yeah. important for people to, to, to listen to because... You know, it may not happen overnight, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen as long as you keep believing in it and, and shooting for what you want in the end. It will happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the key was and is find a way of not having to ask somebody's permission to, to follow that passion. That's all. Yeah, that's 
that's true. That is absolutely true. Now, what do you like the most about being a director? Because, you know, it, it's such a fascinating role in movies, and I don't think people quite understand it as much as they probably think they do. Um, but, I mean, it's it's definitely, you're definitely the whole eye of the, of the movie, and you make sure that everything is done correctly, done the way that you want it to do and the way that you vision it. So what, what brought you to being a director as opposed to anything else other than just writing movies and or maybe even producing well yeah i mean i respect as a a director i have inordinate respect for the fact that film is the most elaborate uh the most collaborative uh art form ever created by man um i think the you know what we think of as the all-important all-powerful omniscient director credit is a little overrated. I think when, you know, first of all, if you're dabbling in the world of, say, Marvel movies, you know, the, the role of the director is also diminished by the fact that, what, 50 to 75% of all of those movies are the work of a giant special effects experts and technicians. Yeah. And without those people, the, the director doesn't have a movie. And in the case of the films I make, uh, without the script, I don't attract dazzlingly uh, talented actors that I get. And once once I cast one of my movies, to me, the casting of my movies, uh, where the scripts are so pivotal to whether it's going to be a good movie or not, uh, once the casting is complete, 50% of my job as a director is done. And I think if you ask most filmmakers, they will tell you they don't do a lot of directing of actors on set if they've cast the film properly. Because... Uh, you know, in the case of independent films, you don't have time to do a lot of takes. You don't have time for improvisation. Uh, the actors expect all of that. They know what their responsibility is, and they come, you know, ready, you know, locked and loaded uh, as soon as the director yells action. I seldom do more than two or three takes of anything. So in terms of wanting to be a director, I just felt that that would gateway, that would enable to me to get my stories and my, my stories told and my characters um, vivified by great acts, um, and that's proven to be the case. The other thing I said about collaborative art form is that without a, a really rock-solid cinematographer and, and, you know, this goes all the way down the line to craft services. As we all know, in independent film, food is pivotal yeah. to whether everybody on that set is happy. So, um, uh, again, I, uh, I come prepared, I know what I'm looking for, and I tell crew members what I want, I've already had discussed ad nauseum with my actors about who their characters are, what their backstories are that the viewer might never be aware of. But once they know their character inside and out, then saying my word comes that second nature for them. Right. That's right. So tell me a little bit about this new movie that you have coming out. I think it's a pretty fascinating plot that I, from what I read here. Uh, tell us a little bit about what this movie is all about, obviously without giving away too, too much. Yeah, I mean, there's one reveal, and it's frankly in the trailer, so it's not that big a reveal, and it's, it's come 20, 25 minutes into the movie. So um, I, 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 think, uh, I think Woody Harrelson in uh, Three Billboards um, doesn't die until 35, 40 minutes into the movie. <laughs> um, so um, wh- what happened here is that three years ago, I set out to write my new script. I didn't know what it was going to be. But my films have always been about largely families in crisis, always featuring very strong female characters, and they've, they're frequently about multiple generations of a single family. Mm-hmm. And at that time, three years ago, my nephew, my 30-year-old nephew in real life, got married. And he, like me, grew up in a conservative Jewish family. He, he migrated to modern Orthodox Judaism in college. We didn't know what that meant, but we said, hey, this 
this kid's smart. He's going to be a teacher. He must know more than we. And also in college, he began, he was fixed up on a date with this beautiful, whip-smart girl who was Catholic, but who had always uh, been fascinated by and reveled in participating in the festivities, the holidays, the um, the traditions of Judaism. She was surrounded, she grew up in Syracuse, New York, she was surrounded by girlfriends who were largely Jewish. Mm-hmm. And uh, they began dating and they began living together. And that's when she decided, no pressure from him, decided, well, I'm going all the way. I'm converting to Judaism, which she did, which, of course, immediately made her the most Jewish person in our family. And she became modern Orthodox. And I didn't really know her. Obviously, I knew my nephew born. But I went out to dinner with the two of them one night, and I peppered her with questions and him. And despite the fact that he was modern Orthodox Jew, he didn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in a deity. She, who had been Catholic, was now Jewish, very much believes in God. They're both teachers. He's a teacher of special needs students. He's a music. And I said to myself, wow, these are two great characters in search of a story. And given what my previous films have largely been about, they've been character studies, dialogue-driven, and multiple generations of a family. I said, well, if I gave this, these two characters, multiple generations, and I go back one more generation, that puts me at the Holocaust. Yeah. And I then realized that we weren't approaching the centennial of the Holocaust. We were really approaching the centennial of the Nazis' rise to power, which was in 1933 when they became the official government in Germany. And given what's happening in the world today, uh, specifically in regard to global anti-Semitism, which I think is more rampant in this, this country than it is in most countries in the world, I thought there would be a particular uh, relevance to, you know, creating a fictional mosaic, uh, you know, around two characters like people. And that's when I knew I was going back to the Holocaust. I came up with this character of the 90-year-old matriarch of the family who is the most beloved member of the family. And after a couple of uh, scenes, holiday-related scenes to Judaism, uh, at a at an outing at the beach, uh, this matriarch makes a shattering fish about who she really is, that the life that these people have known from 30 to 50 years, her whole life for 75 years, from the time she emigrated from Europe, has been a complete lie. And, uh, and it turns out that she was a Nazi who participated in Auschwitz. And the rest of the movie is how each of the surviving four other members of this family react completely different ways to this information, this confession. Uh, and she's 92 years old. Uh, that's the story. Is. Um, and I also knew there was, uh, the, the confession, the, the woman who plays this role, this role, her character's name is Claire, the woman who plays this role, her name is Rebecca Schull. It's the fourth movie I've worked with her in. She's been dazzling every time she's worked for me. This is the first time she's played a lead role. She's 90 years old. She's most well-known for having been a member of the uh, mass NBC sitcom in the 90s called The Wing. But she's now 90 years old. She's playing older. She's playing 92. And I give her, her confession to her great-grandchildren, at a beat, is an eight-page monologue. This is this woman's 90 years old. Not only does she nail this, it is riveting to watch from beginning to end. And I always thought this was going to be the nexus of the entire movie. And that's when I came up with the idea. I did a little research. Uh, you know, I wasn't a great history major at school. Um, I had to do research about Germany before the 20th century. Germany before there was such a thing as a world war. Mm-hmm. Germany during World War One, then the Weimar Republic, then World War Two. And I needed this confession to have a lot of gravitas because it challenges the 
great-grandchildren, and it also challenges the audience. And I said to myself, well, if I can come up, if I can somehow weave into this, um, this, um, this fabric, this story of her, a real-life person, if the timeline works to the, in terms of the fictional characters I've created, that would give it, you know, he'd be very much a character in the film, but off screen. And everybody knows who Joseph Mengele was, but there were a lot of Joseph Mengele's during the Holocaust. Right. So I set out to find one that nobody's really heard of. It didn't have to be at Auschwitz, but it turned out the first monstrous doc um, that I could kind of include as a character in this story was a guy named Carl Clauber. And, uh, and so he becomes, uh, directly, uh, connected to the character in my movie, of Claire, uh, as well as another, uh, doctor who also was, um, practicing, uh, shall we say, uh, at Auschwitz. Uh, his name was Horst Schumann. So when you, I added, you know, this, as leavening these actual people, uh, it, it, it did deliver, I think, the, 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 the punch to the solar plexus of my characters. And to the audience, that was essential to to make it plausible. Basically, what she says at the beach is, "What would you have done in my position mm. if you had been me? What would you have done?" So there you go. <laughs> so tell me a little a little bit about the the making of the movie. What what are the what? First of all, I guess what do you hope people take away from the movie? And what was some of the difficult challenges that you had coming up and making this movie? Well, uh, what I hope people take away from it um, is, frankly, I know this may sound a little odd, but it's the same thing I want them to take away from any movie I make. Um, I whether they love the movie and at early screenings and our film festival premiere last month. It's been largely love, so whether, but whether they love the movie or not, the worst criticism I could imagine is a couple at the end of the movie, one person, one says to the other, where do you want to go to dinner? Um, I want people, whether they love it or hate it, to be thinking about it when they leave the theater, when they go to bed that night, I want them to talk about it to their friends, either telling them they have to go see it because they loved it so much or they have to go see it because they hated it so much. I want the film to resonate for days and weeks and months. Um, and, and I want them to get um, That's really what I want. But at the same time, I also want to uh, appreciate, well, this is where we're not going to get into any spoilers, because if you think that's a shock in the movie, there are other shocks to come. <laughs> Um, I, I want them to, at the end of the movie, think about each of the characters and, and the story that they had just seen. And, and they have to almost, given what, what ultimately happens at the end of this movie, they almost have to repartmentalize everything for a second time after the confession. Uh, every single character is, is different now. So, um, and, and I want them, you know, this woman, this 92-year-old, she is an unrepentant not. And, the, you know, without the film, it's hard to explain how that's achievable 75 years later. But it's not about, it's my movies, it's always about family. And Claire actually says to her great-grandchildren at one point, what happened to the war, it was personal. It happened to me. She wasn't talking about the final salute. She wasn't talking about, you know, she wasn't talking about Hitler. She wasn't talking about, she was talking about how this war affected her. And once you hear her confession and her real-life story, I think the most troubling thing, thing for audiences, if they're being honest, is that if you were that little girl in Germany and you were 16 years old and you had been raised in a foundling home, in a, basically an orphanage without parents, and your life had been saved by a young doctor who was still in medical school at university when you were born, and he puts you in nursing school when you're 14 years old, and 
And two years later, he says, I'm moving to Poland to work at a, at a prisoner of war camp. I want you to come with me and be my nurse. What would you have said? And I challenge anybody to say anything but yes. I'll, and that's got to be the most troubling. There's a line during her confession, which, which is one of the most haunting lines, and it's because she means it. When she explains that this man asked her to come to Auschwitz, and she says, of course, I said yes, it was the safest place I could be. This woman you have known your whole life as the Jewish matriarch of a New York family is now saying that Auschwitz was the safest place she could be. That, I think, is the most haunting line in the whole movie. That is haunting, because you can almost picture it when you, when you say that. And we know some of the pictures that we've seen in the books and stuff about what Auschwitz was, so that, that, is, that is a very powerful line for sure. And what you just said during this speech sequence, that's what her new great-granddaughter, the one who's now by marriage a member of her family, that's what she said, how to deal. When, when the films of the liberations of the, uh, in the 50s, when the films of the liberation of the camps came out, and, and we saw pictures, and we were told what actually happened. How did that make you feel? And her immediate reaction is that I wish won the war. Mm, wow. Not because, but, but then she continues after that shocking line by saying, so, so Carl, uh, it turns out, I mean, we're getting into too much here, but it's, it, it's full of revelatory dialogue, shocking confessions, and because it's so lit with, with what actually happened in her mother's life and her life, you are kidding yourself if you would have said, no, I'm not going with you. It's, uh, it's kind of a remarkable film to watch once and twice and three times. Wow. Very, very powerful. I cannot wait to see this movie myself. Um, so I guess that's kind of going to lead us into uh, where our, our, I know it's going to be airing this weekend. Uh, I'll let you tell everybody where they can see it. Uh, and of course, do you have any plans for distribution on either DVDs or any video on demand or anything like that? No, no. Right now, we haven't. Uh, we would love it to uh, ultimately be available via streaming and DVD and Blu-ray, but that we haven't struck any deals yet. Okay. Uh, there's no politics there. It's just still a small independent film that has to find, you know, its uh, sea legs and really start. And and we've begun to see the word of mouth already. Uh, start to sizzle. Um, we opened in New York a couple of weeks ago. We're opening in Los Angeles this weekend. And then in the next few weeks, we open in Chicago, Dallas, Washington, Phoenix, and Detroit. So we're going to get around. We're going to be in theaters around the entire country. And uh, I, you know, there's no date for when it's going to be available for home viewing or streaming. But I'm, I'm hoping certainly by the end of the year. Well, I am very excited for you. I'm glad that this is coming out. I can't wait to see how it's going to play out. And I definitely wish you all the best. And, and hopefully it'll be coming to a place here in, in uh, my neck of the woods real soon. And uh, I, again, congratulations on, on, a, on, a, on a successful movie so far. And uh, we wish you all the best in the future. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. No problem. But before we go, any websites that you want to promote uh, uh, that people oh, can see it on? Website is, yeah, the film's website is the dash last dot net the dash last dot net perfect nice and simple and, and easy to remember we love that uh because sometimes you know we just don't you know these long convoluted uh emails you know they're, names they're it's just crazy and 
Yeah. I guess the most challenging part is remembering it's net instead of com. That's all. That's right. Well, Jeff, thank you for coming on. This has been a lot of fun, and I can't wait to see how this is going to play out for you. And hopefully we will be able to get you back on for the next movie that you have coming out. And hopefully that's in the next couple months, maybe a year. I hope so, too. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And, guys, we are going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we got a special treat for you because we are going to be doing some music stuff, and we're going to be focusing on musicians from Ireland. This is, if you didn't know, you may not have even known that these people were from Ireland, but we're going to be playing that music here in just a little bit. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this. I'm Gladdy, the dachshund, the face of Gladdy's goodies. Are you worried about your pet's health? My parents were too, especially since I developed pancreatitis. They couldn't find any treats I could eat, so they made some. Our natural treats are healthy for all dogs, with and without health issues. We have lots of delicious flavors, like chicken, turkey, salmon, sweet potato, beef, and more. With our homemade treats, you won't worry about the contents, because they have no chemicals, fillers, or bad ingredients. Go to gladdiesgoodies.com now to get your fur friend a bag, and pick them up some swag while you're there. You'll be glad you did. Remember, we have the treats and swag to make their tails wag. Again, that's gladdiesgoodies.com. Again, that's gladdiesgoodies.com. Hi, this is Jennifer McGill from the new Mickey Mouse Club, also a new recording artist, and you're listening to AME Radio. everybody we are about ready to land in the uk and we're going to be starting off our music tribute to the uk music by going to ireland so our first few artists are going to be right from there we're going to be starting off with one of my favorites the cores they're going to be singing breathless then we're going to go to donna lewis who sings i love you always forever then we're going to hear the cranberries singing dreams and then we're going to go to scotland and we're going to have julie fowlis singing touch the sky this is a song that you heard on brave I chose a different version of it because it's a little bit more traditional to the Scottish ways. So let's get started right now and have some fun. We'll be right back in a few minutes. Go on, go on, leave me breathless.
right, so now we're going to go to England, and we're going to be finishing off our music slots with them. We're going to be starting off with Ellie Golding singing Lights. Then we're going to go to the 1960s and go to the Beatles. Here comes the sun. As you know, they were one of the most profound bands to ever show up out of England. And they're going to be finishing it off with kind of a no-name, one-hit wonder. Her name is Kathy Dennis. She was really hot in the 90s. We're going to be hearing her song, Too Many Walls. This song has a profound impact on my life and meaning for me. And if you've ever read my book, you'd understand. So that's why I want to finish off the show with that. And we'll be back again tomorrow with a lot more. So please tune in. Same time, same channels. You can find it on our website. See you guys tomorrow.
We're done. Calm down, people. Calm down. Okay? That's it.